can have you open with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, although that is not the first place I will read from. Acts chapter 1 is where we will be spending most of our time today because for the last two and a half years, we have worked through the bits and pieces and the details and the nuances of Matthew's gospel. And my hope is not only that we learned more, but that ultimately as we were exposed to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that it brought us to worship and obedience. That is always the goal, that when we see the truth that God has revealed to us in his word, that it brings us to the place of worship. Truth brings us to worship. It shows us the object of our worship. It shows us how to worship. So truth should always bring us to worship. And then truth demands that our lives be conformed to what obedience ought to look like. So Jesus left with a great commission. Matthew closed with a great commandment. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There are people that are left here on this earth, the disciples of Christ called the church, who are left with a very particular mission. We are to be a people who make disciples. And we accomplish that through going, through baptizing, and through teaching. And that mission on its own, given to that group from a human perspective, would be impossible to carry out. Those men, that group initially gathered, did not have the resources that they need to carry out that promise. And yet here we sit, some 2,000 years later, still worshiping that same risen Christ through the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship of the saints. And we have to ask, why? How is that possible? Well, it is only possible because Christ is faithful to his each and every promise. A couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but the world shut down. We went through this whole COVID scenario that strained us in a number of different ways. And really, since the beginning of COVID, we've been thinking very hard about how to maintain, how to develop, how to encourage unity within a church in a time and place where unity is difficult. And as we came back together and as things got more normalized, although they still don't feel normal, uh, we were thinking through a context for how to define and describe what church is. When church has now taken on a different meaning and a different definition, depending on who you talk to and how we access the church and what is a right understanding of how we do church, well, there seems to be a very natural flow from Matthew's gospel and the disciples who are called to go out and make disciples to then moving into Acts and thinking through what it looks like when those disciples gather together. Because Matthew 28 and that great commission promise, they, they, take place in the, or that they take place in the shadow of the promise of Matthew chapter 16. And that's where I want to read for us, just to kind of begin to settle our minds on where we're going for the next eight weeks. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, this is what Matthew writes. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Lord, you promised to build a church, and you are good and faithful to accomplish all of your promises. Lord, we sit here, separated by time and location across the centuries, and we call ourselves a church. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word in the coming weeks, that we would see those things that characterize this body that you have designated called your church. 
And I pray in those areas where we are obedient that you would encourage us, strengthen us to excel still more. And in those areas where we are weak as individuals or as a body, I pray that you would bring us to the place of conviction and repentance and then move us toward a greater understanding, a greater obedience, maturity. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We are a fallen and finite people. We bring darkness and blindness, even in our best intellectual moments. Lord, we are wholly dependent on you to do the work that is necessary for us to be obedient. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So how do you know that you're really a part of something? Last night, uh, my boys and I got to go to the USC game. Somebody gave us tickets, and so we were hanging around down there. And how do you know you're really a part of the team? Well, there's a lot of people with jerseys on, but not everyone had the jersey, the pads, and the tight pants. It was pretty clear to see who was a part of the team. Maybe if you go into your workplace, you have the uniform, you have name tags, but maybe you're not really convinced until you actually see that first paycheck come through. In some contexts, knowing whether you're a part of something is a little bit more difficult. We all went through high school, and I'm sure there were times when we all felt like we were part of the group until you're the only part of the group that doesn't get invited to go somewhere, and very quickly you find out that maybe you're not as invested or as involved as you thought you were. But on something infinitely more important, how do we know whether we're a part of the church? I guess externally it would be easy. We have a sign out front that says Chapel City Church. We are in the building at the right time. Um, Most of you, I'm pretty sure, even have name tags on today. So there's some level of investment there. Maybe you'd take it a step further. Maybe you would say, well, my name's on the membership roll and has been for years. And you say, I could look back at my checkbook and say that I've given this amount or I've served in these particular ministries. Those are all good and they're all helpful things and they're all certainly things that people who are a part of the church do, but how do we know that what we do in any given context here is rightly called church? I mean, after all, there are a number of people that are gathering together today all across the world that we would say, although they call themselves a church, they don't function like a church. They are not rightly called a church. There are a number of people that we would even say are cults that might call themselves a church. So when we say that we are a part of the church, how do we know that that is true? And if it is true, how do we know what that ought to look like? Well, what we're going to do in the coming weeks is we're going to look at the book of Acts, and we're going to see some characteristics that mark out Christ's church uh, across the centuries and across the cultures, because church might look a little bit different, time, place, culture, language, music, even from building to building here in town, church and how we do church might look a little bit different, but what are those fundamental, foundational, non-negotiable things that define the church and delineate that from the world? We're going to look at the book of Acts and we're going to see what that initial church looked like, a church that wasn't perfect and certainly neither are we. We're going to see that there are things that are consistent from every culture, every language, in every gathering, and that's what we're going to strive to move toward. So we're going to do a couple of things today. First of all, we're going to spend some time doing introductory things, as we always do when we jump into a new book. This is going to be a little bit different. We spent two and a half years on Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, moving all the way through, and that is 90% of what we do here. And that is good and helpful because I always know what's coming next, and it's much easier to prepare. 
Uh, this series will be a little bit different. We'll be consistently in the book of Acts. We'll move somewhat chronologically through the book of Acts, but it won't be every verse. Just This will take us up to our time in Advent and really kind of hopefully settle our understanding that might have been unsettled a bit over the last couple of years. So the first thing that we're going to look at today is uh, understanding the setting here. We're going to look at some background information on the book and the author and understand some overall thematic things that happen in the book of Acts. And then we're going to move into understanding the spirit, which is the first mark of the church of Christ. And we'll get to that in a bit. So first of all, let's open with understanding the setting in the book of Acts itself. And in any kind of meaningful interaction, the first thing you have to do is define your terms. So before we even open up verse 1, we have to define what we're talking about when we say the church. If you're going into a business arrangement and you're making a contract, you define your terms. When you say dollars in that contract, both parties, buyers and sellers, need to know whether that's U.S. dollars, Canadian dollars, Australian dollars, all of those things get particularly defined. When you tell your kids, clean your room, you define your terms. Clean means I can see the whole floor that the bed is made and then the closet opens and shuts. And not only does it open and shut, but when I open it, I see clothes that are hanging up and not on the floor. You have to define your terms. When we talk about the church, we have to define our terms. First of all, the church is not a building. We say we know that. We say that all the time. But it's built into our cultural understanding that to be in church means being in a building. The church is not defined by the place where they meet. The church is always defined as a people. In Greek, ekklesia is the word for the church, and there's no inherent religious understanding in the word. It means a gathered people, a called out people, a people who come together for a specific purpose. Not just a group that winds up in the same place, but a group that comes together for a particular purpose. In other words, you are not a part of the church simply because you happen to come through the doors of Chapel City during the service time on a Sunday. The church is a particular people who are in Christ. When we talk about the church, we are talking about the people who are in Christ. Very, very broadly spoken, the church is those who are saved. Those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Those who have believed in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. If you look through the New Testament, the church is defined by any number of things. They are called in Christ. They are defined as the body of Christ in Ephesians 1. All of these things that kind of get at the nuances of who they are. But ultimately, the church is comprised of saved people. And because the church is comprised of those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, there are a couple of different ways that we talk about the church. You say, because if that's the case, if the church is the people who are saved, well, not everybody who is saved fits in this building. And indeed, not everybody who is saved even in this city is in this building today. When we talk about the church, one of the ways that we talk about the church is this understanding of what is called the universal church. Or the invisible church, the idea that Christ has a people from every tribe and tongue and nation on this planet. The church gathers this week, and that is in China, that is in Canada, that is here in California, and yet they are all bound together in this one thing called the church. We read from Ephesians 4, the opening of our service, for that purpose, because this church is called together in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Although we might not get together this side of heaven, we might never meet these people this side of eternity, we are bound together in Christ and are therefore part of one true church. That's a pretty remarkable thing, that you and I have real meaningful fellowship, something, the most important thing in common with people who are very, very different from us. 
Now, within that universal church, within that larger church that we will never see again until we're gathered into glory is what we would call the local church. Chapel City is an extension, a local church, the church in a particular place. We can see Paul write letters to various local churches. He wrote letters to Philippi, to Corinth. He wrote letters to the Galatians. And while all of these things have the same spiritual foundations, they all speak of the same truth, you'll notice as you read those that he addressed different situations, different circumstances, different questions, different issues that came up in those different congregations. So over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about church with the understanding that when we talk about the church, we're talking about the body of Christ, the gathering of believers, particularly in our local body, but it's going to be very, very important that we understand these distinctions because if you're sitting here assuming that you are part of the church simply because you are in a church building, then when we go to make applications, it's not going to make any sense. More than that, it's going to be impossible because when we talk about the things that the church is supposed to be and do, you simply cannot apprise or even attain those things if you're not actually a part of the church to begin with. And then we're going to look at how the church responds in obedience, and that matters for us as individuals, and it matters for us as a corporate body. So we understand that the church is a group of people who are in Christ. And with that as a background, now I want to jump into the beginning of the book of Acts so that we can begin to describe the book so that we begin to understand some of the themes of the book as a whole. Look with me at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. An introductory sentence that we look past very often and read through pretty quickly, but there's some very important things there. First of all, we need to understand who the I is and what that first book is. Otherwise, this doesn't go very far in making sense to us. And we actually don't have to wonder because if we were to open Luke's gospel, the intro to Luke's gospel reads this way. Luke chapter 1 verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. Luke, the author of that particular gospel, is also the author of our book of Acts here. Now, Luke was not a disciple or an apostle. He was a traveling companion of Christ. And he says that he takes these things from the eyewitnesses, and his goal is to provide an accurate and orderly account of all that he's heard and all that he's studied and all that he's experienced. And he's writing them to a man named Theophilus that we don't have any information about other than his name. And the way that Luke addresses him indicates that he was someone who was fairly important. But again, we don't even know specifically the context of that. But we do know that this is given for the purpose of his understanding and education. Luke is telling him that this is a true and detailed and orderly account of what has happened. Now look back again at that first sentence. In the first book, that would be the Gospel of Luke, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And that sentence is actually packed with some of the major thematic elements that are going to take place through the rest of the book. Isn't it interesting that he says, that this is what Jesus began to do and teach, because if you look at the scope of Luke's gospel, it is narratively more broad than Matthew's gospel. Luke's gospel takes us from conception all the way to the ascension of Christ. 
He doesn't stop with the death or the burial or the resurrection. He doesn't stop at the Great Commission. Luke takes us all the way up to Jesus ascends back to the right hand of the Father. And you say, how can that be just the beginning of what Jesus began to do and teach? Well, in some sense, we know that none of the gospel accounts are a complete telling of the story of Jesus. John writes that that would fill more books than were available. But more than that, as you read that this is what Jesus began to do and teach, it is put very early in the gospel that what Jesus did was the beginning and his disciples will now carry on. The work, the life, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ prepares his disciples to finish the work that he had started. And how does that carry on? Well, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, the work carries on as his commands are followed. What command of Jesus was left ringing in our ears at the end of Matthew's gospel? Go and do what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Acts is the account of those commands being followed. The narrative account of Acts is the going of the gospel to all nations. And how did Jesus give those commands? Well, it says through the Holy Spirit. A major theme of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit and the way that the Holy Spirit moves in the life of the church. Not only among Jews, but among Gentiles who the Spirit comes upon as well, which provides the church with unity, which gifts the church, which we'll talk about in a moment. But this ministry of Christ that's carried out in obedience to the Father through the power of the Spirit now carries on again in his disciples. And Luke writes that these are the apostles that he has chosen. The name Acts is more fully the Acts of the Apostles. This is the record of those chosen apostles carrying out the commands of Christ in obedience. And it matters because that's the narrative framework for the next 28 chapters. This is history, but it's more than history. This is a record of the faithfulness of the promise of Christ to build his church through the means of equipping that he has given. Because again, those people that he left that command with, go and make disciples, are not equipped to carry out that command. Without what happens in Luke, they are simply not able to do all that they have been told to do. How is it that those 11 disciples, again, who flee into the night, into the darkness, when Christ is arrested, how is it that those disciples who are nowhere to be found when it comes time to take the body of Christ and prepare it and care for it, how did those then become men who will proclaim boldly the gospel even when it costs them, even when it costs them dearly? This explains how that happens. And really, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at, and that's the work of the Spirit. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of misunderstanding. We, we talk about Trinity, we talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and when it comes to those three, really our theology of the Spirit is, if we're honest, probably the weakest. It's the one that's certainly subject to the most debate, uh, some of the most uh, vibrant discussions, perhaps, in some church contexts, we'll say. But understanding the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical to our understanding of the church, and so we're going to spend the next few minutes understanding at least the beginnings of what the Spirit does in the church, and then we'll carry this on next week in a more detailed way. And the first thing I want us to make sure that we understand is the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, When we talk about the Holy Spirit, is it a who, is it a what? How do we rightly even characterize what the Spirit is? And we need clarity on that uh, because this is foundational to the promise that Christ 
said he would build his church on. Look with me, if you would, at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. After his death and burial and resurrection, Christ uh, was appearing to them during 40 days, according to verse 3, speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, that shouldn't surprise us at all. When Jesus was on earth carrying out his mission prior to his death and burial and resurrection, his primary theme was the kingdom of God. He was the king, and this is how you come into his kingdom. So carrying on the teaching of that kingdom, again, shouldn't surprise us at all. That is still a primary theme of what he was saying. But as that 40-day period comes to a close, he gives them a very, very specific instruction He says, stay here, wait, do not depart from Jerusalem. Now that's odd because we just finished Matthew where it says go. How do you go and how do you wait? Well, the fact is if they go, they're not ready to go yet. They have to wait because at this point they need the Holy Spirit before they're equipped to do that. They need to remain in Jerusalem for a very particular purpose. And they're waiting for what Jesus says is the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. So the first thing we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit is that promise of God, but more than that, the Holy Spirit is fully God. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we are speaking of God. And this is where things get jumbled in our minds simply because we do not have the means in our finite human minds to understand the Trinity perfectly. We don't have the language to communicate it. We don't have an object in our physical world that mirrors the aspects of God when we talk about things like Trinity. We speak of God as one. We worship one God, but we worship one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each distinct but dwelling in perfect unity. And that is so difficult for our minds to get around that we want clarity, we want a picture, we want something analogous to this to show us that this is like this. And so we come up with all of the illusions and all the illustrations and they all fall short at a particular point. And in trying to define these things, um, really it's led to a lot of very bad and disastrous and destructive thinking. A lot of heresies come out of an improper understanding of the person of God as it relates to Trinity. There are some who say that there is one God, which is accurate, but sometimes that God is acting as Father, sometimes as Son, and sometimes as Holy Spirit. That's modalism, that's that's heretical. And the fact is that we don't have a picture that makes it absolutely clear for us. What we do have is God's Word that tells us these true things that sometimes feel like their intention. There is one God. But Jesus says to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He sets them as equals. I want you to turn over a couple pages with me to Acts chapter 5, a narrative that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land and they hold back some of the prophets and that wasn't the problem. The problem was that they lie about it. They said they gave everything, but they didn't. But in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, look at what Peter says. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
So Peter specifically references the Spirit. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now look at the end of verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Who did he say that he had lied to? He lied to the Spirit, and now he parallels that by saying you have lied to God. He sets the Spirit as equal to God. We could go to Psalm 139. You don't have to turn there, but in Psalm 139, that great psalm of praise where David is recounting uh, the character traits of God, these uh, these aspects of God that bring him to this place of worship. And in verse 7, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. This omnipresence, this all places, everywhere, all at once, part of God's nature. And he attributes that to God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is fully God, sharing all the perfections of divinity. But not only is the Holy Spirit fully God, the Holy Spirit is rightly described as a person of the Trinity. What do I mean by that? Well, let's define it by the negative. The Holy Spirit is not an energy. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not the Christian Star Wars view where this force kind of flows through all things and is encompassed by all things and is composed by all things. That is not what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a personal thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. A force cannot be lied to. Peter said that, right? You have contrived this in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to lie to God. You cannot lie to a force. I might go on my scale and attempt to lie, but gravity does not. I cannot lie and overcome that force. In the book of Ephesians, Paul tells those precious believers not to grieve the Holy Spirit. You cannot grieve a thing. No matter how messy my car gets, I cannot grieve my car. You cannot grieve an inanimate object. You can't grieve a force. You grieve a person. So the Holy Spirit is fully divine with all the perfections, all the attributes of God, and the Holy Spirit should be seen and talked about as a person, not as an impersonal force. And the next thing we need to understand and work through, and the next thing that's really kind of... uh, to where we are today and again next week is the work of the Spirit. When we understand what the Spirit is, who the Spirit is broadly, now we talk about how that relates to the church. Again, Jesus says, while staying with them, he orders them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit is a response to a promise that was made to the disciples. And to see what he was promised to do, at least in part, I want you to flip with me to John chapter 14, the book just before Acts there. Go back just a few chapters to John chapter 14. When we come to John 14, we're in the upper room. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. He's comforting them. He's encouraging them. He's speaking words of truth to them. And look at John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. He says, if you love me, You will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The first work of the Spirit is in the name that Jesus gives him. He is a helper. The Holy Spirit is a helper given to the church. Well, what will he help them do? Look down to verse 26. 
Same chapter, John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is a helper, and a couple of the ways that he helps are he helps by teaching and by calling things to remembrance. He reveals truth, and he brings back to memory. You look at the writings of the New Testament, and you see this ministry of the Holy Spirit in action. We talk about the Bible as being inspired. As the men wrote, they were carried along by the Spirit, the Spirit revealing truth to them. This Bible that we hold in our hands and on our phones, if you're very technological, this Bible that we have, we call the Word of God. We say that it is true. Why is that? Because it is inspired by the Spirit of God, who is, because He is by very nature God, true. And so what He says must be true. He calls to mind truth. He recalls things to their remembrance. The disciples, suddenly you read this in the Acts, their eyes are opened to things. As things happen, they remember what Jesus said. That is a work of the Spirit. And that's a work that carries on, not in revealing new truth, but in opening our eyes to truth. Remember as we went through Matthew's Gospel, on our own, in our flesh, what do we bring to every spiritual situation? The answer is blindness darkness. We do not bring a natural aptitude for the things of God. We do not bring a natural understanding for the things of the Spirit. It, it is why I pray every time that I preach from Psalm 119, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Because I can read this book, I can understand the words and the letters and put them together and make sentences, but I cannot rightly understand what this says for the purpose of worship and obedience without a work of the Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit helps us in our fundamental weakness and that it is impossible for you and I to worship apart from a work of the Spirit. What a remarkable thing given to the church that we are able to worship God because the Spirit shows us what is true both about God and about how I'm called to respond to Him. This is the Spirit who is given to help His church. I want you to keep a finger or a marker there in John chapter 14 and head back to Acts 1 for a moment because what else does the Spirit do in the body of Christ? Look again at verses 4 and 5. He said, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. And now he goes on and says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What is baptism? Baptism is an act of identification with Christ. That picture as someone is immersed in the water of being identified with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And now Jesus says there's a baptism that's coming that's a different kind, not with water, but with the Spirit. That baptism that was a picture of cleansing, there is now going to be another cleansing that happens, not water that clears off the flesh, but a cleansing that goes all the way into the heart, into the conscience of the worshiper. It's why Paul says what he does to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, there are things that characterize the unrighteous, and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's, don't be fooled, don't be deceived. You know that the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom. And then he names these broad categories of sin, sexual immorality, idolatry. Really, he gets broad enough to where everyone finds themselves in there in one way or another. But he doesn't end there. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says, and such were some of you. You were a person that by nature and by action had no right to inherit the kingdom of God, but God did something on your behalf. It says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God, that baptism of the Spirit signifies that cleansing of the believer that brings a real purity. And that baptism of the Spirit is another mark of identification and inclusion. Just like physical baptism identifies you with the body of Christ, being baptized in the Spirit identifies you with Christ who saved you. It is a defining mark of those who are part of the church. Look back at John 14 with me again. John 14, and look at verse 16. We've already read it, but it says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the spirit that is coming is not for the world. This spirit is the spirit of truth that the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But look, what about the church? But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That is an unbelievable promise to the disciples. That is an unimaginably beautiful promise to the church that we read right over Paul says we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are so accustomed to that that we breeze right by it. That does not shock us like it should. What did we talk about with the temple and the tabernacle in Matthew's gospel? Why were those such wonderful things and such painful things? Because the temple and the tabernacle meant that God was dwelling among his people. You could look and you see that God is there among us. But you couldn't get to him. You could bring your sacrifices. You could worship him truly. You could worship him in a way that was acceptable, but you could never go into his presence because you simply were not worthy. You weren't of the right family. You weren't of the right line. You weren't the oldest of the sons of Aaron. And even if you were, you couldn't go into his presence except one day, the Day of Atonement, once a year. But even then, you weren't fit to be in his presence. You had to bring sacrifice. You had to bring blood that covered over those sins. the death of Christ we saw as the veil was torn that there is now access to God but understand that in this promise there is not only access to God there is the promise that God himself will not only be with you but that he will be in you can you imagine that that the presence of God would not only be with his people but would indwell his people do you know how unthinkable that would have been to these people living under the old covenant They've seen pictures of the Spirit coming upon people. There's glimpses of it in the Old Testament. Joshua has the Spirit fill him for the purpose of leading God's people as they conquer the land. You read through Judges, and the Spirit comes mightily upon men like Samson, upon men like Gideon, and it empowers them for service. The Spirit comes on Saul and on David, and it enables them to lead God's people. But what happens when Saul is sinful and rebellious? Spirit is removed. It's why in Psalm 51, David pleads, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That is a tearful cry from someone who had seen it happen. And now we come to this new covenant promise that says the Holy Spirit will transform your dead stone hearts to hearts of flesh, that it will take law written on stone and it will write it on the heart, that it will abide with God's people, that it will remain with them. 
a spirit that's not transient, that doesn't move back and forth, that doesn't come and go, a spirit that indwells and abides with God's people. It is a remarkable promise. To be a believer, to be a part of the church of Christ, is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. He teaches and he cleanses. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that he seals us. This Holy Spirit is set like a seal. We talked about the seal on that grave of Christ, this mark. The Holy Spirit is a seal on the lives of believers that guarantees our inheritance. How do you know that the promise is true? That God will complete the good work that he started with you. That that eternal inheritance that he talks about is actually applicable to you. It's through the seal of the Holy Spirit. And that is, again, something we could spend weeks and weeks on, but we got to move on a little bit and back to the book of Acts because I want to just touch on the last of the works of the Holy Spirit, something that we'll expand on tomorrow, or next week. Back in Acts, look at verse 6. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They want to know, is the kingdom now? Consistent question. They still have not learned everything from Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, that's not for you to know. Don't worry about it. In fact, I've given you work to do. Not to sit here and wait for the kingdom, but to go and to preach the message of that kingdom but they can't do it yet. What will make them able to do it? Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is going to enable and equip these men, these timid, finite men, these fearful men, these limited men, to take that life-changing, eternity-shaping gospel to the ends of the earth? It's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit enables and equips God's people for service. Flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The disciples are obedient. Jesus says, Stay, wait, and they do. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided as tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We'll work more through that next week. But what made them able to do what God had called them to do? They are going to preach, and they are going to preach to a gathered people who would not have understood them. What enables them to do the work of ministry that they were called to do? It's a work of the Spirit. It's not because they were smart enough. It's not because they were good enough. It's not because they finally put together a beautiful discipleship and outreach plan. It is because the Holy Spirit empowered them to do exactly what Christ had called them to do in the first place. And again, that is so important and so thoroughly misunderstood at times that we're going to spend next week on working through Acts 2 as well. Because we're a people that are called to worship in spirit and in truth. The church is at its heart a community of worshipers. We are those who have been saved by grace through faith in an act of mercy by God. We exist to make disciples, to make other worshipers. And we know that we're required to worship in spirit and in truth. And the truth part is pretty easy, or at least it's easy to define. We worship the one true God, because anything else isn't rightly called worship. We worship God in the way that he has called us to, in the way that he's revealed through his inerrant, sufficient word. But how do we worship in spirit? 
primarily it means that we have an understanding that we can't do it on our own. That I don't have the words, I don't have the insights, I don't even have the knowledge to worship as I should without a work of the Spirit. Even my best efforts at worship, even directed toward the right object of worship, aren't really worthy of being called worship. But the Spirit helps us, the Spirit enables us The Spirit purifies us and seals us. The Spirit intercedes when we don't have the words to speak. The Spirit convicts us. He encourages us. He reminds us of truth. And the Spirit seals and indwells God's people, the church, until the day when we see him face to face. Just two things for us to think about as we head out this morning. First of all, the indwelling of the Spirit. When it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, there's a lot of debate and discussion. Some of that is very helpful. Much of it is not. But here's something that cannot be up for debate in our minds and something that needs a settled understanding before we move on. Because everything that the church does and is in the book of Acts and today, everything that rightly characterizes the church rests on the foundation that it is spirit-enabled. God's people are those who are indwelt with the spirit. We are defined as a people who have the spirit. Paul in Romans says, anyone that does not have the spirit does not belong to Christ. Jesus says that the Spirit brings life in John 6. There's no second action that is needed. There's no second blessing. There's no second filling. To be a member of the church is to be filled with the Spirit. To be saved is to be filled with the Spirit. And no matter what the battle over what you have to pursue after that, you need to understand that if you are one of God's people, you have His Spirit, which is fantastic news because it's the Spirit that brings life. Because it's the Spirit who will comfort and encourage in the darkness and the pain and in the trial, because it's the Spirit who will enable you to be obedient in any and every circumstance. You don't have to look for more. You don't have to long for some extra experience. God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. What a precious gift. And the second thing, it is good to reflect on the unity of the church because we spend a lot of time reflecting on the distinctions of the church. And sometimes that is helpful. But what a beautiful thing it is to be reminded that the Spirit binds us together. It's not our location. It's not our language. It's not our preferred worship set. There's the ability for the church of Jesus Christ to have a wonderful unity that is lacking in the world today in a world that cannot have civil discourse on anything, God's people are able to talk about things and even come to different conclusions on things. Unity is not uniformity. There's different gifts, there's different perspectives, something, again, we'll open up next week. But unity is possible in the Spirit, and it's a unity that brings peace. And it's a unity that we get to celebrate in really tangible, beautiful ways, one of those being what we're about to participate in, and that is communion, the Lord's Supper. We're going to take a few moments, and we're going to rejoice in what we hold in common, communion, and what we share together as a body of Christ, as a local reflection of the universal reality of the body of Christ. And so for the next couple of minutes, I would ask that you just prepare your hearts that if you're in the church building, but if you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you are not part of the church, I would encourage you uh, not to take communion. Don't, don't confuse a physical thing with a spiritual reality. This is merely a reflection. 
if there's sin in your heart, if you are grieving the Holy Spirit, take this time to repent, to confess, knowing that God is good and faithful to forgive. If there's someone that your unity is divided on, a brother or sister in the Lord, where that unity isn't being displayed, confess. Make plans to restore so that we can rightly celebrate this again as a body, a gathering of believers. If you don't have the elements for communion, if you somehow missed those on your way in or they didn't get handed to you, just put your hand up just slightly. The ushers will be down and they'll make sure that you have those. We'll come back together in a couple of minutes and we'll take the bread together. So you might want to get the little pieces pried off. I know that that can be a challenge. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we take the bread, we remember that the eternal, holy, omnipotent Son of God took on flesh, humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of man, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a remarkable sacrifice. Lord, we, the people of God, are bound together by the common sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the one who stood in our place, who bore the wrath of God that we deserved in his own body. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice, and we rejoice in that sacrifice. Amen.